Hello everyone, my name's Luke and welcome to Scapegoat, the podcast where we see who gets to blame and who gets away from murder, sometimes literally. I'm recording this on Monday the 18th of December, one week before Christmas. Well, this isn't exactly a Christmas episode, I plan to put out a proper one next week. This is going to be slightly linked to Christmas. And Christmas has always been a bit of a strange time for me because for most of my adult life, I've lived far away from home and I always have to travel back for Christmas and I know there's a lot of Christmas songs about travelling back but I've had lived in places where you've had to have a passport to travel to these places like go across continents, countries, boundaries all to get home for Christmas and I can tell you there is nothing scarier than not having a passport, having a damaged passport or have forgotten your passport and you might think damaged passport I'm going to tell you a story. I used to live in Timaru, New Zealand, and I know we've got a couple of listeners up in Christchurch, so Kiora boys. Uh, the thing is, when I was living in New Zealand, I would go out to the pub sometimes. You couldn't use your driver's license. I needed to use my passport to be accepted, so I'd always have my passport on me. And I was leaving New Zealand, and I was returning back to Ireland, and about a week before I needed to come back home, I was just doing a big wash, and... You know, you always have to turn out all the pockets. This is the one time I messed up, didn't turn out the right pocket, and I accidentally put my uh, passport into the washing machine. Now, I realized this after 10 minutes, but by the time I fished it out, it was very wet. So I put a book on top of it, put it on top of a radiator, and thought, please be okay, please be okay. When I took it out, it was discolored, and it had very crinkly pages, but I thought, This might work because I can't delay my flight because I can't stay where I'm staying. This is going to cost me a fortune and I can't order a new passport in time because I'm in Timaru and Wellington's across the country. Oh God, I've got to risk this. So I flew from Christchurch to Auckland using the passport and I managed to get through and it was the biggest relief. And then I thought, okay, Auckland to London, please accept this in Auckland. They accepted it and I was like, Okay, hopefully I get there and they don't deport me from London. Got to London, everything was sweet. And I thought, second I'm in London, even if they reject it in Dublin, at least I'm be going back to London. And yeah, I mean, the idea of not having a passport or having a passport rejected is a scary thing. And this happened once to a man called Meran Kerami Nisari. And you probably have not heard of that or... You might not even have heard of his alternative name. He sometimes went as Sir Geoffrey Meran. For this story, we're actually just going to call him Alfred because that's what he actually likes to be called. You might not have heard of him, but you probably have seen the poster, at least, for the movie The Terminal, starring Tom Hanks, which in Tom Hanks has to live in an airport for a while. Now, this is based off a true-life story. So we're going to learn what leads a man to living in an airport for 18 years. We're going to look at how this happened. Did his country scapegoat him or did he put himself in this situation himself? We're going to look at the way he describes the situation first and the results. Then we're going to tell you some alternative facts that might change your opinion on the story. So we're going to start into Alfred's life. Now, Alfred was born in Iran in 1942 at an Anglo-Persian oil company settlement. He states his father was a physician and his mother was a Scottish nurse. 
and his father wasn't married to this nurse he was actually married to another woman so he was an illegitimate baby and when the Scottish nurse gave birth she left and he was raised with the rest of the kids but he never kind of felt that welcome into the family he claims that he gained a degree of psychology from the University of Tehran but in 1972 his father suddenly died and his family disowned him and he had to leave to go to Bradford University in the north of England where he studied Yugoslav studies under Iranian government grant. So he quickly found himself running out of money and he had to return to Iran where he was caught up at a protest which he didn't really want to be at which was anti-Shah. So the Shah was the king of Iran so this was an anti-Shah demonstration and he was plucked out of the crowd, although he didn't want to be there, and was tortured by the Iranian security forces, imprisoned. And after his imprisonment, he was stripped of his nationality. He said, you're no longer Iranian, and he was expelled from the country. So from there, he tried to gain access to different European countries. I think he started in Italy, then went to West Germany, then tried Yugoslavia. And he was trying all over the place. And he was traveling for years throughout Europe until refugee status was granted to him in 1981 by the Belgium government. So the Belgium government gave him documents which let Alfred stay in Belgium and it let him move between European borders for short amounts of time. But he wasn't really supposed to leave. It was only supposed to be extremely temporary. But Alfred decided, OK, I'm going to go to go back to the UK and go to places like Paris. No problem. And he even travelled to Heathrow in 1981 at the weekend of Charles and Diana's wedding. And he got printed out a little form which for some reason called him Sir Alfred Mechan. And he claims, okay, this says my name is Sir. I must have been knighted because of Charles and Diana's wedding. So this is my title now. I am now Sir Alfred. Call me Sir Alfred. Nobody wanted to call him that but he claimed this is legally my name. It's not legally your name. Alfred was traveling from Paris to London where he actually intended to relocate. So he decided, okay, I've had enough of Belgium and this is 1988. I'm going to travel from Paris to London and I'm going to appeal for asylum there. So when he was going from Paris to London and he was flying for Charles de Gaulle, he was on a French train and suddenly his suitcase was stolen Inside his suitcase was all his documents. So he arrived to the airport and thought, okay, I'm going to still try and go to London. Arrived in London and said, okay, my passport and all that sort of stuff was stolen, but I can still go into London, right, guys? And they said, no, you are deported. You are going back to France. So he was returned to Charles de Gaulle Airport and immediately arrested. But according to him, they didn't deem it illegal to enter the airport and although he is sentenced to a four-month jail sentence, it wasn't enacted. However, he had no papers, so he couldn't leave the airport. So he couldn't go on to another flight, which left the airport to go to another destination. And he couldn't just walk out from the front doors because he needed to go through border security. So he was stuck inside the airport. So you're immediately probably thinking now, okay, so he had Belgian citizenship or he had Belgian refugee status. Why not just go to Belgium, ask Belgium, just print me out some more documents and I'll be going. But the Belgium refugee officials refused because they said it's standard policy for refugees 
that you need to present yourself in person. So you need to go into Brussels or where Antwerp, or no, that's actually Netherlands. You need to go somewhere in Belgium, spa by the racetrack. You need to go somewhere in Belgium and present yourself so they can tell that you're a real person. So it's not like people say, oh, send me my refugee documents in another country. Also, they said that we wouldn't reissue documents because once a refugee leaves the country that has accepted them, they can't return. You're not supposed to return. That, you know, they were saying you can leave for very small amounts of time. You abuse that policy, so you're not getting back in. What Alfred said was, okay, how about this? Instead, how would you give me a very, 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 very temporary visa? I go back to Belgium. I present myself, I can get this card, then I can go to London and I can do all my things. But he said, no, you've left, you cannot return, Alfred, you're France's problem now. So the inability to get documents meant that Alfred remained stuck in Charles de Gaulle airport. So, So initially, Alfred was stuck in a foreign airport with no support structure. He had to rely on like whatever money he initially had, which wasn't a lot. Then he had to get donations from people who worked at the airport or passengers traveling through. And it wasn't really dignified. Charles de Gaulle in 1988 wasn't the same Charles de Gaulle that we have now. It did have some restaurants, but Alfred ended up, the only place he could really afford to eat was McDonald's. What he was reported to have eaten every day was an egg and bacon croissant in the morning and a fish filet in the evening or a fish sandwich. Charles de Gaulle, being a big airport, you know, they didn't have great restaurants, but they did have facilities. Alfred used them so he could go to the shower each morning and he could go to the men's bathroom and shave each day. So although he was technically homeless, his description was of one of a distinguished gentleman who wore dry clean suits. So much better than the average homeless person in Charles de Gaulle, or much better presented at least. The case of a man living in Charles de Gaulle soon began to be reported in the French press. Famed French rights lawyer Christian Bourget uh, began to pressure Belgium, the country he had refugee status from, France, where he was currently residing at an airport, and Britain, where Alfred claimed to have nationality because he was Scottish. He said, you free countries sort something out to let this poor man out of an airport. However, none of these countries really wished to budge due to international turmoil with the Yugoslavian wars and the Soviet bloc dismerging. They thought, we're going to have a ton of refugees coming in the next few years and if we look weak, they're going to go straight to us. We don't want to be the country du jour, so no, 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 we're not accepting him. But after seven years of pressure, I know this sounds like he's just there, but time skip, he's been there seven years. Belgium finally relented and they said, Alfred, we'll give you the opportunity to live in Belgium again if you agree to supervised social worker visiting you and stay in Belgium. So everyone thought, that's actually a great deal. Just take the deal, Alfred. However, Alfred refused. He stated, no, I only want to live in the UK now. It's where I went to university. It's where I wanted to go. It's my original destination. I'm not leaving until I get offered UK. You think this is a reasonable situation? You think, hmm? Is the UK going to do something? No. Four years later. So at this point, he's been there for 11 years. The French government come forward and say, okay, we will give you another chance to leave this terminal. 
will offer you a temporary residence visa in France with options to keep extending it and you just have to leave. Okay, you just sign this, you're allowed to leave, you'll be grand. However, Alfred refused to sign the documents, leaving the French exasperated. So the documents said his name was Meran Karami Nassari. And he said, no, according to that ticket I got in London, my name is Sir Alfred Meran. And you have to call me that. Plus, I'm not Iranian, I'm British. So according to this form, it said his country of origin was Iranian. He was like, no, I'm saying I'm British now. Write down I'm British. The French were just like, nah, you're going to end up staying here. Just sign the documents. He refused. His lawyer was practically having a stroke at this point, being like, you've turned down two really good deals. You're not British. But Alfred might have had an ulterior motive for doing this, because... By this time, he'd started off in 1988 being like quite poor and quite unrecognized and generally being just like a homeless person while distinguished in Charles de Gaulle, still a homeless person. But Alfred began to have a lot of concessions made to him by the airport. He had his own bench, which was his, and they actually let him add stuff around it like desk lamps and tables. So Alfred had his own zone in the airport. He had supporters from all around the world sending him donations, so he was actually getting some good money. And he was also regularly visited by the media, which I'll say now, if I was visited by the media, it would give my ego some great things, and it certainly gave his ego some great things. And he also charged the media commission to come talk to him. So if you want to write a story about Sir Alfred, you pay him money. You want a picture of Sir Alfred, you pay him money. So Sir Alfred was thinking, hmm, this is quite, he was probably thinking, I'm putting words into his mouth, this is a good thing. No, I mean, this might sound a bit strange because you're thinking, Alfred, you've got no fixed address, you've got no bank account because you've got no fixed address, what are you going to do now? But Alfred, being the guy he was, managed to get the airport's doctor to agree to cash checks for him and give him the money. So Alfred was walking around as a homeless person in Charles de Gaulle with trouser pockets full of cash. You know, wasn't doing badly. He really wasn't doing badly. And things really started to go on the up and up for Alfred because different people kept coming and things would change from like being newspaper reporters to different TV segments in French or the United States or in English or in German. All these reporters would come around just do a, you know, puff piece on him and they'd be giving him like, you know, 200 euro to do this other tv trivia shows would come in to review him or human interest stories or even some independent films like there was a giant french film all about his life in 1993 but the biggest piece of media involving alfred was a steven spielberg movie the terminal yes we've mentioned this before but this was a huge movie it actually made a quarter of a billion dollars gross this story followed an extremely similar premise to Alfred's story, with a character being played by Tom Hanks being stuck in JFK International Airport in New York. Now, it's claimed that DreamWorks, who's Steven Spielberg's company, paid Alfred a quarter of a million. Not a quarter of a billion, how much it made, but a quarter of a million. $250,000 for his life story. There's different articles, like the main way this is stated is a 2003 New York Times article. However, there's never been a public statement released acknowledging this or 
there's never really been more of an Alfred saying this happened. In the movie, although it follows a very similar premise, it doesn't credit Alfred in any way. He's not mentioned in any of the publicity materials, and even the most you can find about him and the movie, apart from like articles, you can find a line on a Wikipedia page saying, He probably had something to do with it. No real proof, but Alfred seemed very pleased by it anyway and said, This is based on me. Then he wrote a book based off his life, and I read the book for it. There's a lot of details in the book which are different than a lot of stuff which is being reported, but I go get into that in a little bit. Now, Alfred left the airport in July 2006, not because Tom Hanks drove in with a carload of money and said, You're an American now, or something crazy like that. No, it's because he fell ill and was hospitalized, and he was hospitalized so badly, took him out of the airport, you said, okay, you don't need a passport, you can just go straight to hospital. And by the end of 2006, he was in a hotel close to Charles de Gaulle Airport being looked after by the French Red Cross. Then in early 2007, he was moved to a homeless shelter within 10 kilometres of Charles de Gaulle. He had spent 18 years in the airport and become a minor celebrity. But after he moved out of the airport, there's no mention of him past early 2007 apart from one blog post in 2008 by a blog I've never heard of called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or HGT2TG.CG I think it is and they said that he still lives there so that's the last report of this very famous guy a Spielberg movie was based off just suddenly disappeared in 2008 and 10 years later there is nothing. There's a French article in Liberation which says that he had planned to move to a hotel with money from his book sales, but this was reported in like early 2007 and it's there's no real proof that he actually did that. I really don't know what happened to him. We're going to go into what we think happened to him, but we're just going to talk now about a couple of differences between his story because... We've said this story from the way Alfred told it, and there's a couple of details which are really different in the way certain other people describe it. These people being Alfred's family, or the Iranian government, or the French government, or even the British government. Some of the things he says have been directly, let's say, disagreed with, criticised, not agreed with. So, although Alfred claims he was disowned by his family, Family members contacted The Guardian during an interview and they said that their brother, the last they had heard of him, he was a student in England and then he disappeared. He had been part of the family, they had never disowned him. And they said in 1991, a family friend saw Alfred in the airport and approached him. However, Alfred refused to respond to him, completely ignored him. And while other family members have tried to speak to him or gone in because he actually has a sister who lives in Luxembourg that, yeah, he just ignored them and wanted nothing to do with them. So the family deny that uh, they he was disowned and said, like, this is just Alfred's own problem and he's happy living in the airport. That's up to him. The family also denied that Alfred's mother was a Scottish nurse and they said, no, the mother of his brothers and sisters is also his mother. He's making this story up. So the mother, quote-unquote, so the Iranian mother of or at least his father's wife, says, why is he making up these stories? I am his mother. Come on, Alfred. What are you doing here? 
So Iranian sources have also claimed that Alfred was never expelled from the country. Alfred's story was he was arrested for protesting against the Shah, either in Iran or sometimes his story has changed a little bit saying he protested in Bradford and this is why his funding was cut and then when he returned to Iran he was arrested. So he's told both of these versions, sometimes in books, sometimes in interviews. But the Iranian government states that Alfred was only ever in trouble once with the government in 1980 when he was a student at Tehran University. He said that 20 or so students were complaining about a university matter. They were detained by the Iranian secret police. And however, after about eight hours of interrogation and basically talking to interrogation is a hard word. They didn't describe it that way. They said, like, we talked to them and we interviewed them. After eight hours, students were released and no charges were filed, which goes against his claim that they were imprisoned and tortured. I mean, again, you'd say, well, which country will claim that they actually had their citizens like tortured and stuff? But the Iranian government since the revolution in 1979 I can see them really wanting to say, no, no, you did bad. Shah government is bad. Yes, they did torture people. But the Islamic Republic is beautiful. We don't torture people. So you'd think maybe they would have a reason to lie there. But no, they said no, nothing happened. So if this is true, if he didn't actually get cast out of the country and lose his nationality, then he was never really stateless. And this kind of froze a lot of the things about his refugee status out the window. He can still seek asylum. That is still relevant. But saying you're a complete refugee without a passport is somehow questioned if you have a nationality. And there's also a fact that he claimed his documents were stolen because he'd actually done something very similar before. In 1986, when he was leaving Belgium to go to England, he took the ferry to Folkestone. When he arrived in Folkestone, he claimed... Actually, I left all my Belgium ID back in Belgium because I was planning on living in England from now on. So I don't need my Belgium refugee card. The British officials immediately deported him back to Belgium, who didn't accept him and sent him back to England, who sent him back to Belgium, who sent him back to England, who then sent him to France. So he was like pinball. He was banging between like England and Belgium and I know you can't see what I was doing with my hand there because this is a podcast but it's like ding 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 just going between these two places eventually he got to France then when he got to France after about three months he was arrested for not having identification and being legal so he spent served seven months in prison in France then when he got out then he tried to travel back to London to live there and that's where he lost his IDs. He lost his ID and then he went to jail and then he had new ID, then he lost his ID again. You think, I mean, it could be a very unfortunate story, but it just doesn't quite add up to me. And there's other times that Alfred's story has radically changed in just some weird ways that sometimes they say he would claim he doesn't speak Farsi, which is the language they speak in Iran, so... He would say, oh, I'm not Iranian. I've never been Iranian. Oh, I don't speak Farsi. And like an Iranian TV crew will turn up and he's like, oh, I only speak English because I am from England. And sometimes he would say his mother was Swedish rather than Scottish. And in his book, I think he says that she was English. You know, there's just different, uh, there's different times the story changes that I think he's like, hmm, I think I can get asylum in Sweden. Yeah, my mom was Swedish. But before we go into this fully, 
we're going to do a bit of a summary. We're going to talk about some aspects. We're going to say scapegoated or not scapegoated. And we're going to talk a bit more about this story. So as you can imagine, this story has left me with more questions than answers in some parts. So it's very interesting to see what happened to a man without a passport and how he lived in the airport. But a lot of what Alfred says is just kind of very contradictory. First, I think we have to ask is, Alfred a reliable narrator or not? There's an idea of an unreliable narrator, which is someone who tells you a story, but you can't trust the details. It would be like me saying, hey, do you remember that time that I won the Olympics and I won all the medals? You'd be like, look, that never happened. Stop telling lies. This is bad. Alfred's doing this, but to a lesser extent, or at least that's what some people are accusing him of. There's other people that could argue that maybe he's just being misreported because a lot of the things that are reported about Alfred come from things like Guardian articles or New York Times articles. And Alfred released a book and a lot of the details in his book are different. And you can kind of say, is this down to the book being like a different story or is it just down to lazy journalism? Because there's some things in the book which almost make a bit more sense because a lot of the way Alfred's life is described as his father died and his mother kicked him out for no reason and then he was kicked out of university for spending all his money somehow and then he ended up in London and then he got arrested and then this. In his book he kind of describes, hey, this woman, once my father died, my mother or my stepmother decided, okay, you're disowned because I don't want you to share the inheritance only like the true born sons and daughters will share this. You're not getting any of your father's wealth. And there's another bit that he said in this book that claims that he lost his funding because he was involved in a student protest in Bradford, which is why his money suddenly dried up and he had to go back home all of a sudden. So you can kind of see like his book makes a lot more sense. You can kind of see a lot of the gaps filled in and you're wondering this was released in 2004. Is this because people kept asking him the same questions for 16 years and he came up with like a more cohesive narrative? Or was he being misreported? Well, I'm looking at different stuff from about 93. There's a great Irish Times article from 99. There's a very good New York Times article from 2003. And a lot of the people around Alfred say, yeah, he's just not all there. Even if you go to Wikipedia and you look at the talk comments, like, you know, the people editing the pages, a lot of the people there actually were French people who met Alfred, who were writing comments, and I think there's a genuine thing by a lot of people around him that he was slightly unhinged, so I would say he's an unreliable narrator. You have to then say, did he deserve to be locked in an airport for 18 years? Did he put himself in this situation? Did the UK, French, and Belgium governments scapegoat him? And I would say, I feel that he was a little bit unstable and he was bouncing around Europe and he wasn't taking things like immigration law that seriously. He was like, okay, now that I've got this Belgian thing, I'm just going to move over and I'm going to live in England and I've got a Scottish mother, laddie daddy dee. I think he clearly wasn't someone who had a very good idea of reality. And I think he put himself in a bad situation because of that. But I think between the UK, French and Belgium authorities, they shouldn't have left him in there for 18 months, never mind 18 years. And I understand they offered him a way out after seven years, but you know, you get institutionalized the things. It's like, it reminds me of the Shawshank Redemption 
about the guy who had been in there for 20 years and then he didn't want to leave. This is kind of the same way I feel a bit about this, that they offered him a leave at 11 years or 7 years and, you know, he might have had other reasons for not leaving, like he was making decent amounts of money, but he could have just been institutionalised at that point. I think that someone, the French should have at least, you know, maybe had broken the law, maybe put him back in prison, but say when you leave, we'll give you, like, a temporary visa or something. They kind of left him in this sort of, like, loop state that I think it would have been much better for him to have actually gone to prison for four months, then gotten out, applied for French visa stuff, and just been told, you're not going to the UK, you're living in France or Belgium or something, and, you know, this is you, you're not going, you're not. Rather than sticking him in this sort of, like, no-go zone, which is far worse. So, I think he was scapegoated because, like, they were afraid of getting too many refugees. And I don't think he really deserved it. Okay, another question that I was thinking about myself, which is really strange, is he left Iran, according to his own story, in 1976. He said that's because there were protests against the Shah, and the Shah, the king of Iran, basically, his forces said, you're gone. But the king of Iran's forces didn't last that much longer. By 1979, there was the Islamic Revolution, and all the Shah's men, including the people who would have been torturing him or arresting him, all the people he claimed, I forget what they're exactly called, I think it's like Skakak, is like the Iranian uh, secret service forces, they were all on the side of the Shah, and they were ruthlessly purged. So I would say that if Alfred had really wanted to, in 1979, after the revolution, he could have said, Here, guys, I was one of the first people protesting the Shah. I really didn't like him. I am with you. And he might have gotten back his passport. I'm thinking that isn't what he wanted. I get the feeling that he always wanted to live in the UK. And I get the feeling he probably wasn't that big of a Muslim. I'm basing this purely off the fact that he had an egg and bacon croissant each day and Muslims can't eat pork. I know that's a very silly thing to base something off, but I've got nothing else to Um, why didn't he leave when he had a chance? Again, I think he was probably institutionalized. Plus the money and having a bit of like a celebrity where people come in and talk to you and make a kind of thing of you. I think that kind of helps. I know certain people do you know the idea of Munchausen's? That, you know, people would be making themselves seem sick to try and get sympathy? I'm not saying it's as bad as that, but to put yourself into an unfortunate situation, but not that unfortunate so people would sympathize with you, I can kind of see people doing that. It's like my, me at the minute, or for instance, if I'd say, oh no, I dropped my phone, and... I cannot podcast. I wish someone would buy me a new phone. And someone out there might be actually foolish enough to think, oh, hey, Luke actually podcasts from his phone, not his computer. And I like his podcast, so I'll buy him a new one. And that's just exploiting people. And I think he was kind of exploiting people a little bit in that way. That, you know, exploiting sympathy, exploiting, like, you know, a bit of celebrity, exploiting people think, oh, this poor man going into this airport. You know, he could have left, but I think that's kind of a bit of a sickness, really. What happened to him since he left? Left in 2000, uh, last year in 2008. I'm guessing he signed a temporary visa and went into France. And the fact we haven't heard of him makes me strongly feel, now this is just a gut instinct, that he was deported to Iran. 
Now, this is one of the things I can be a wee bit suspicious about because in 1999, the French government offered him a piece of paper saying, here, you can stay here temporarily and you're got, as long as you say you're Iranian and this is your name. If he said he was Iranian, it means they have a country to deport him to. If he hasn't got a passport, you have to keep him. So if you say, I'm Iranian and I'm temporarily living in France, that means after two years they can say, ah, go back to Iran or... After four years, go back to Iran. I kind of feel that this guy was a bit fame-hungry. Not, like, to a huge extent. Not to, like, a megalomaniacal extent. But I do feel that this guy, from his character, at least by reading, I would have found some article in the last ten years where he's written in Le Monde, I lived in an airport for ten years, or, like, something in some newspaper somewhere where he would have done an interview or he would have died because he was a heavy smoker and he's now 75 that they would have written an obituary he just seems to have disappeared so someone people knew for 18 years and was not like the most famous person but like reasonably well known i think you'd have seen something like i really do i get the feeling that he left hospital he was temporarily out then about 2009 once his visa ran out straight back to Iran. But uh, yeah, okay, that is the end of the episode. So if anyone knows Sir Alfred by any chance, because different people could have come across this by like just searching or interest. If you happen to know him and you know he's okay, would you drop me a line and I will add an addendum to this episode saying I've heard and he's okay or whatever happened to him, just so people would know and get some closure. So if you happen to know him and you happen to have searched this by accident, would you give me a wee just uh, contact? I'll give out the contact details at the end of the episode. But uh, yeah, I'm just going to say one more thing, one more of my own personal experiences, that I could tell you another reason why a passport is important from my own personal experience. I also lived in the Czech Republic for about four years. And when I arrived, I had a seven-year-old passport. I was going home each Christmas and everything seemed okay, and I kind of returned. I had nine months left on my passport, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to go back home next Christmas. I don't really need to renew this until September. Then it hit September, my passport had run out, and I thought, okay, it'll just take me about a week to renew this. But what actually happened was I lost my bank card. I actually lost my full wallet, but my bank card was important. So I went to the bank and said, Hey guys, uh, my name's Luke, and uh, can I have a new bank card? They said, okay, where's your driver's license? It's in my wallet, don't have it. Okay, they said, sure, you're bound to have a passport. I don't have a valid passport. So I'd say, this ran out five days ago. Isn't valid, sorry, we can't accept it. I said, five days, come on, five days. I'm ordering a new one. Couldn't get money. So I went to the Irish Embassy and said, here, can I order a new passport? They said, fine, that is, I think, 700 crowns? And I said, okay, I don't have 700 crowns because I don't have a bank card because I don't have this. So I could see myself being in a cash 22 situation where I needed 30 bucks, 30 American dollars, about 25 pounds. It wasn't a ridiculous amount of money for a passport. It really wasn't. But I was completely messed until I had this. And yeah, very fortunately, one of the diplomats wrote me a letter to bring to the bank, brought it to the bank. They let me get a new bank card. I got out money. I paid for the passport. Everything worked out, but I can say that really freaked me out. So in my own way, I can appreciate 
bureaucracy being pretty terrible. So I hope everyone gets home safely for Christmas. I will be trying to record another Christmas episode. I've got a big idea and I've got this planned out. So if anyone would, yeah, hit me up. Uh, if you've heard of this guy, I'm scapegoatpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, I'm at scapegoatpod. I normally leave all the social media stuff in the description below the episode anyway, so if you want to click on that. We've also got a Discord server, so anybody who wants to get involved in that, you can. So, yeah, that's pretty great. And uh, thanks very much for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye!